When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the Everything 80s Podcast Movie Review, Ghostbusters. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast Movie Review. We're looking at Ghostbusters today, the great 1984 supernatural comedy directed by Ivan Reitman. It stars some of the best people in the business, including Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, uh, Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, all the greats. So what we'll do is go over you know the whole plot of the movie. We'll look at some behind-the-scenes stuff. We'll look at some of the different themes that are explored. And if you stay tuned to the end, I've got a pretty cool new book release. Not my book, but a, a Ghostbusters-related book that's coming out. I'll give you more details about that at the end. So let's start with the whole plot breakdown. So we start with three guys, Peter Venkman, Race Dance, and Egon Spengler. And they're, sp- they're scientists at Columbia University, and they investigate the paranormal. So following their first encounter with a ghost they find at the New York Public Library, they end up being fired by the dean and he dismisses all their work and all their credibility, everything they've done. So in response to that, they create what they call the Ghostbusters, which is a you know, paranormal investigation and elimination, sort of like an exterminator, but they're doing it for ghosts. So they end up finding an old firehouse and they develop a lot of high-tech equipment to be able to capture and hold on to the ghost. They also end up with a sort of combination car that's part hearse, part old medical thing they call the ecmo- ectomobile, and that helps support the whole business. So they're putting out ads on TV and everything like that, and they run across a lady named Dana Barrett who's dismissive of the whole thing but has to end up calling them because she has some paranormal activity of her own in her own kitchen. So she recounts the whole event, and she describes how when she opens her fridge, she sees this creature that just says one word, Zool. So Venkman, he, you know, is trying to reassure her. This is, of course, the amazing Bill Murray. And he's obviously romantically interested in her, while Ray and Egon are the ones actually researching her claim. So everything is, you know, going along pretty slow at first. Business is slow the, until they have this opportunity to go to the Sedgwick Hotel to remove a ghost from there. So... As they're going along, Egon warns the group uh, they use these um, 
photon blaster things, and he talks about never crossing the energy streams from the proton pack weapons, as that could cause, you know, a whole catastrophic explosion. So they end up capturing their very first ghost, and then they take it back to the firehouse where they have this like containment unit, and they can transfer the ghosts into it. So now business started is starting to pick up as paranormal activity is starting to increase across all of New York. So to keep up with the demand, they hire a fourth member, Winston uh, Zedmore. And then there's we start meeting people in the Environmental Protection Agency who's sort of suspicious of everything they're doing, specifically uh, one of the heads of the EPA, Walter Peck. And he's one of the inspectors. And he's asking to, you know, go over their equipment, uh, you know, evaluate all the stuff to see if it's on the up and up but ends up being like ridiculed and insulted and and leaves the whole place. So privately, Egon is realizing that all this paranormal activity and supernatural activity is becoming dangerous and all their equipment is being overused and overstressed and it could potentially fail. So eventually Venkman uh, meets up with Dana and he tells her, all about Zul, which was a demigod that was worshipped as a servant to Gozar the Gozerian, Gozerian. And that is a sort of shape-shifting god of destruction. He convinces Dana to discuss, you know, the whole case over dinner and further trying to woo her. But when she returns home, she is uh, supernaturally assaulted and then ends up being possessed by Zul. So down the hall... Uh, we've got a sort of nearly identical entity manifests and then chases and, and possesses her neighbor, played by Rick Moranis, uh, called Louis Tully. So Venkman then arrives and finds the possessed Dana, who's now technically Zool, claiming to be the gatekeeper. So Louis is also possessed, and he's found by police officers, and he claims he is uh, Vince Clortho, and he's the key master of Gozer. So... The Ghostbusters have to get back into action, um, but keep this whole pair separated so the end of the world doesn't happen. So Peck ends up returning with law enforcement and city workers to arrest the Ghostbusters, and he wants to deactivate that ghost containment system, but it's now like over the brim full. It's stressed beyond capacity. So the shutdown of it causes an explosion that releases all those captured ghosts. Um, and then they end up detaining the Ghostbusters. So uh, Lewis is, you know, he manages to escape in the confusion and makes his way to the apartment building where he meets Dana slash Zool. So now in jail, Ray and Egon reveal that Dana's building is actually the true source of all the supernatural increases that are happening in New York. So the architect turns out was this genius and cult leader of Gozer worshipers. And he designed it to channel ghosts for the purposes of ending the world. And now complete chaos is happening all over New York city. So the ghostbusters have to convince the mayor to let them go despite the protest by the environmental protection agency. So now we're on the apartment building roof and Dana and Zool and Lewis are now, they've opened the gate between dimensions and transform into different supernatural creatures 
just as the Ghostbusters are arriving. So Gozer is in the form of a woman arrives and Ray attempts to reason with her at first. Then when this fails, Gozer attacks, forcing the Ghostbusters to attempt to trap her, but she ends up disappearing. Her disembodied voice demands the Ghostbusters that they choose the form of the Destructor. So Raymond uh, inadvertently recalls a beloved mascot he had from his youth that you would see in either the kitchen or on billboards and Gozer returns and reappears in the form of a giant stay puffed brand marshmallow man that proceeds to attack the city. Egon tells the team to ignore his earlier advice and actually cross the energy streams at the portal though, because this might be a way to deactivate it. It works and the resulting explosion destroys the entire marshmallow man form of Gozer uh, sends him back to his dimension and ends up closing the portal. So then the Ghostbusters rescue Dana and Lewis from the wreckage and then are inevitably the heroes of New York City. So, I mean, the first thing, I mean, we could be here for hours, but the first thing about Ghostbusters, which is so amazing, is it really encompassed what 80s movies were all about because it has elements of different genres wrapped into one, like horror, science fiction, action, comedy. It, it, it was something that the movies in the 80s, did. like say like Back to the Future, same thing. It's like action adventure, it's science fiction, it's comedy. Um, same thing like Indiana Jones movies. And I think that's what makes these 80s movies like absolute hallmarks. So it was a horror movie, but more in an 80s kid-friendly way. You know, some of the... Ghostbusters stuff and ghosts could scare us, but it was more in a cartoon sense and not like in a damaging poltergeist or the shining sense. You know what I mean? It was, it felt a little more juvenile and a little more able to, a little more accessible, I'd say for, from a kid's perspective. So, I mean, the thing, it, it's got all this like amazing imagery that like the most perfect casting probably ever, very memorable music. Um, and, again, and again, like all these iconic characters, including, you know, like Slimer or uh, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, all that sort of thing. So as far as behind the scenes things go, there's so much that happened with this movie. Uh, like just starting off the bat, some of the original, as good as the cast members were, some people also considered to be in the movie were Julia Roberts, but also John Candy, which would have been amazing and I think worked perfect. It was pretty high budget. It was 25 to $30 million for what was, you know, technically a comedy, even though it was a science fiction movie, still a pretty high price tag, but it ended up making quite a lot of money, uh, upwards of almost 300 million when if you, and that's an 84. So if you convert it for today, it was around 775 million, which is again, pretty amazing. Um, Again, it like there was a real rush to get this movie done, and they only had a few takes on every scene to get the thing done in time. And it was filmed in around five months, but the editing took like six months to do. So a lot of that's why a lot of their there's a good energy in the acting and the performances because you were getting like their initial take and their like their sort of first readings of the lines. Interesting thing with Slimer that he took six months to design and cost around three hundred grand. Also interesting, he was never called Slimer specifically in the movie. We think of him as Slimer because of the real Ghostbusters cartoon where he got that name. Another interesting thing, because the movie was made by Dan Aykroyd, 
it was uh, Slimer was partly based on John Belushi as a tribute to him. The end of the movie when they uh, disintegrate the marshmallow man and all the marshmallows falling on the crowd was actually shaving cream and they were dumping so much it was actually like hurting a lot of people. The it the one scene where they are running through Rockefeller Center, you remember like with Bill Murray and Aykroyd, I forget who else is in that scene, but they're actually getting chased by real security. So that was a real scene. The thing is, you think that they, they filmed Saturday Night Live at Rockefeller Center. You think that a security guard would know who the hell Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray were. Like they're the legends of that show. Interesting with the production of the movie, there was no faith in this thing. And like from the agents of the actors, to uh, the different chairmen from the studios, uh, different everyone thought they were going to lose their shirts over this thing. And the fact that it had a budget of upwards of $30 million was absolutely insane. The one thing they did that was really smart was they started an early advertising campaign. And the big thing I think that helped it, and, and to me, especially from the uh, kid's perspective, was the logo. You know, the the, the red circle with the line across it with the white ghost coming out of it, the very cartoony look. And that was helpful because that's how they first tried to drive interest to the movie. And that logo was very recognizable. So in the, the lead up to the movie, a lot of people instantly knew what it was because of that iconic image. And again, with say like from a kid's perspective, it you knew it wasn't a cartoon movie, but the fact they used a cartoon ghost in this like no ghost symbol made it more appealing to kids as opposed to, again, like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or The Shining, which is clearly not a kid's movie. Not that Ghostbusters is primarily a kid's movie, but it does have that appeal to kids. So it comes out on June 8th, 1984 on a pretty big weekend. It opened the same time as Gremlins did, and which was also the third week of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So 84 is a huge year for classic movies. So besides those three, you've got Terminator, The Karate Kid, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. You've got movies like Romancing the Stone. You've got The NeverEnding Story. This was the first time in box office history that there were four films in the same year that grossed over $100 million. So, like, blockbusters are starting to become a regular thing. Like, say, obviously, like, you know, Star Wars being as big as it was. But then after that, you had E.T., which like dethroned it. But then you had uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was huge. So blockbusters were slowly starting to happen. By 1984, it was becoming a real thing that you could have multiple huge movies in the same year. So let's look at a few more reasons. Um, uh, actually, more the themes of it. Of it. And, and Ghostbusters does have some very inter interesting themes specifically put in there. One of the themes is what is called, again, if you grew up in the 80s, you know this Reaganomics, which was a focus on limited government in favor of a free market provided by the private sector and, you know, the private sector of entrepreneurship and, and profit motives and individual initiatives. And that's the idea with the Ghostbusters team. There, you know, the 80s, we talk about the rise of, of yuppies 
and the more and growth in investment and stock market and and more of a, a booming period. And again, the focus on limiting government and allowing the private sector to rise up, and that's what the team of the Ghostbusters were. They were like a small little agency that created their own industry and was able to flourish from it. And as a group, they really are the ultimate entrepreneurs. They saw a problem in the marketplace and they provided a solution for it. They used their expertise to make money. And that was actually one of the themes. And then it's amazing when you look back at this movie uh, at the time, and if you're a kid, the stuff goes way over your head. And these might even be themes you never even considered, but they are there. One of the other big themes is the idea, now that we look at these private business um, and the success these businesses can have, how they can be ruined by like incompetent bureaucrats from government agencies. Uh, So example now, you know, with the Ghostbusters, that when the containment unit problem, when the EPA comes in, they let the spirits fly over the city. And and that's one of the things how (laughs) government at all different levels can um, cause more problems than they solve and that they damage these private businesses. And then, then it's another issue about the real issues with like government motivation and the private sector has to, you know, respond to the problem in this case, in this case, it's ghosts because the government is incapable of doing anything about it. So underneath the, the layers of, you know, Slimer and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and the different dimensions, they're trying to tell the story of how the government can't always bail things out and that it's the small little, um, the little guy who's got to come through to solve everything. Also, again, Dan Aykroyd was responsible for, you know, helping write and create it. And along with um, Ivan Reitman, they both claim how they they wanted to portray this very cynical view of politicians, which they do, specifically that the mayor only wants to unleash the Ghostbusters. If you remember back to the scene, he only decides to let the Ghostbusters go in to conquer the city, not because he wants to save everything and the people, but he's reminded that if they succeed, they will save the lives of millions of voters. So again, Ghostbusters is giving us this view of, you know, an official or a government official who is motivated mainly by what will allow him to retain his position. And that's, you know, part, and the Ghostbusters are one of the vehicles and the ways that that's happened. So I'll start wrapping it up here and why Ghostbusters is so great. It's amazing because it combines special effects that were pretty amazing at the time, but it also works as a straight-up comedy. And at this point, you know, this is 1984, not that this wasn't happening, but usually you only got one or the other in a movie. It was either a straight-up science fiction movie or, or special effects, or it was a straight-up comedy. So, But it was able to combine these things and work equally as one or the other. And the other thing is it always felt like a bit of an underground cult movie because it has all these great lines. It's got all this quotability. It's got all this the memorable character. But it also, you know, it feels that way despite being a massive blockbuster. And I guess wrapping it up, up, I think the legacy 
has lasted because Ivan Reitman himself said that there's a real appeal of Ghostbusters because of the comfort it can bring kids. And that was also part of their intent with the movie. I mean, generally, you know, kids are scared to death of things like ghosts and the paranormal and everything like that. But watching Ghostbusters gives a sense that you can control these things. Um, It can be mitigated. It doesn't have to control you. And that's what makes it less frightening. Again, if you compare it to like Poltergeist or The Shining, there's no sense of control in it. And then The Shining with the Overlook Hotel and the creepy twins and everything like that, that's controlling the whole situation. In Ghostbusters, we're seeing how people and we can can control those things that scare us. So another, I think that's another really great takeaway of an amazing movie. And again, another one of those definitive eighties movies. If you were going to like pick one movie to represent the decade, Ghostbusters is always in that conversation. So I mentioned finishing here, I mentioned at the start about a Ghostbusters uh, book and there's this new project that came out. It's called the Ghostbusters art book. And it's being published by uh, a group called Insight Editions and produced by a company called Printed in Blood, which does all this amazing work and books and art books on a lot of, you know, 80s classics and cult classics. And I got one of the advanced copies and it's amazing. It's this like 288 page coffee table book where it's using all these different artists who were influenced by Ghostbusters and then getting their takes on the movie and how it influenced their own art. So you've got sections devoted to movie posters they've created or sections just on the characters or just on Slimer. And you see all these different styles of art from like cartoon to this sort of comic noir to like anime style. Uh, and, And the thing is unbelievable. Like it's this coffee table. It's like having the eighties and Ghostbusters in a coffee table book. And that's exactly what it is. So you can order, um, advanced copies. All the, I'm not sure when exactly comes out, but if you go to everything eighties podcast.com slash Ghostbusters, I've got a whole breakdown of the book as long as, as well as some pictures of it and the links where you can pre-order it on Amazon. So I'll finish here. That's it for me. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, wherever you find your podcast, I should be there. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. I know there's a million podcasts out there. So the fact you're taking the time to listen, listen to this one means a lot, but I will be back very soon with a new episode. So don't you dare miss it.